0: section three of the age of anne by edward ellis morris this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter three the new dramatis personae in accordance with the provision of the bill of rights confirmed by the act of settlement william was succeeded on the throne by his sister-in-law anne daughter of james the second and anne hyde daughter of the earl of clarendon in character and in fitness for the position of sovereign Anne was very different from william she had not his discernment nor his statesmanship nor his resolution on the contrary she was without strength of character she could not be expected to establish a new policy nor through good report and evil report to adhere to one already established she had always been and after her accession she still remained under the influence of some stronger mind such influence was essential to her there is no feature in her character which is so important to recollect as this for it explains a good deal of her reign especially two of its salient features her adoption and her abandonment of the grand alliance anne however though no great ruler of men possessed personal qualities which would have made her highly esteemed in private life and which endeared her to her subjects. Her private character was irreproachable. She was kind, affectionate, and good, a warm friend, and with a humane heart. But above all, she was sincerely religious, like both her grandfathers, and unlike her father, she was warmly attached to the doctrines and rites of the Church of England. She often shared the unreasonable fears of the high church party, and was easily shaken by the cry, the church is in danger she was very popular with the english people and mainly for this reason that she was peculiarly an english queen having as she said in her first speech from the throne an entirely english heart coming between a dutch king whom many englishmen had accepted as a necessity but never loved and a german prince who could not even speak their language the English have always looked back with affection to her reign, and have enshrined her in their hearts as good Queen Anne. Anne had married Prince George of Denmark, a man of dull understanding and of coarse habits. I have tried him drunk, and I have tried him sober, said Charles II of him, and there is nothing in him. Had he been a man of more capacity it is not unlikely that he would have been placed upon the throne as william had been but with him it was impossible to this husband queen anne was tenderly attached by him she had a large family but all of her children had died in infancy with the exception of prince william who in the last reign had been created duke of gloucester in him the hopes of the english people were centred King William appointed Marlborough as his governor, Bishop Burnet as his preceptor. My lord, who seldom paid compliments, had said to Marlborough, on entrusting him with his office, Make him but what you are, and my nephew will be all I wish to see. But in the last year of the seventeenth century, the same year which proved fatal to the wretched King Charles of Spain, the young prince died. Upon his death, The act of settlement was made law, by which it was decided to whom the crown should pass upon the death of Anne, for when Anne came to the throne, aged thirty-seven, she was childless. She now appointed Prince George to the office of Lord High Admiral, an office for which he was manifestly unfit. It has been said that the Queen was entirely under the influence of favourites, at her accession and for many years before during the whole of william's reign and even earlier she had been under the influence of sarah jennings wife of the duke of marlborough a woman of commanding mind of great ambition and with a very imperious temper her intimacy with the queen was very close they were in the habit of corresponding with each other under assumed names the queen was mrs morley the duchess mrs freeman their husbands prince george and the duke were mr morley and mr freeman respectively the name freeman was perhaps adopted by the favourite as a symbol of the liberties which its bearer thought herself entitled to take with her friend it would not be too much to say that she governed the queen some her husband amongst the number have had the faculty of charming whilst they ruled so that the ruling was concealed she had not the real hero of this reign the successor of king william in his policy of consistent opposition to france was john churchill duke of marlborough in this man were united the noblest and the meanest qualities and it is therefore difficult to form a just estimate of him for our purpose it will be sufficient to pass very quickly over his earlier life and to give a short sketch of his character fortunately for us at this point in his career that great man is already shaking off the slough of his baser life marlborough as a young man was attached to the household of james duke of york through the disgraceful fact that his sister was the prince's mistress at the age of twenty-three he served in a campaign against the dutch under the great turenne whose favorable notice he attracted. He rose quickly through the different military grades, and shortly after James's accession to the throne, he commanded the English troops sent against the pretender Monmouth, whom he defeated at the Battle of Sedgemoor. James wished him to become a Roman Catholic, but from this step he shrank, and when afterwards the revolution took place, this proposal was the reason that he gave for his desertion james placing implicit trust in him sent churchill forward with troops against william's invading army instead of fighting william he joined him during william's reign he is at the beginning in positions of trust but he himself does not seem certain as to his future or genuine in his sympathy with the revolution for though he held high office under william he yet intrigued with the exiled james probably wishing to be safe, whichever side triumphed. William discovered his secret correspondence with the Jacobites and dismissed him from all his employments. Marlborough boasted of having betrayed to James and so to the French the secret of an enterprise that the English were about to make against Brest, which betrayal led to the failure of the attempt and the loss of the commander with eight hundred men. Yet before William's death, marlborough was reconciled to him and as we have seen was entrusted by him with the important office of governor to the young duke of gloucester it is also said that william when contemplating the war of the spanish succession designed that marlborough should command the armies of the grand alliance it will be evident from the above sketch that if we begin with marlborough's bad qualities that which taints all his character and all his actions is self-seeking which did not hesitate to use even treachery as its instrument nor was his treachery only a willingness to shift allegiance the generation amongst which he had been brought up which had seen the days of the commonwealth and of the restored stuarts and finally had consigned the stuarts again to exile must have held but lightly by the duty of allegiance but marlborough's was no common treachery no ordinary laxity of principles in high places if others left james easily gratitude should have kept him at least by his side the imparting of information of a military expedition to the rulers of a country with which his own was at war can be excused by no blaze of glory nor can we palliate the sending of money to assist a rival to his sovereign's throne The self interest, which seems to have been the leading motive of conduct both in Marlborough and in his wife, sometimes assumes the baser shape of an inordinate love of money. A nobleman who was once mobbed by mistake for Marlborough in the time of his unpopularity indulged in this sarcasm at his expense I will easily convince you that I am not my lord Marlborough. In the first place, I have only two guineas about me and in the second place they are very much at your service marlborough even grudged a pension to a servant who had saved his life yet let no one imagine that marlborough was altogether a bad man his great vices tainted his public and his private life but he had qualities which went far to redeem these and which enabled him to render almost priceless services to his country and to europe He was possessed of a consummate military genius, and courage dauntless yet not rash. He was never defeated in any battle. He was always ready to expose himself to danger, provided that it was necessary. He had also a virtue more useful than courage to soldier or to statesman. Calm patience. He showed no excitement in the heat of battle. He was calm and serene in danger as in a drawing-room. Closely allied with this calmness was a suavity of mind and of manners which fascinated the most critical judge. Marlborough was a singularly handsome man, gifted with a beautiful face and a most perfect figure. It has been said that his calmness proceeded to a great extent from a want of heart, but his affection for his wife was so remarkable that he has often been taunted with being too much under her influence. If she wrote angrily to him, no success in war could make him happy until she had relented. Moreover, as a general, Marlborough was remarkable for his humanity. Before the battle, he would point out to the surgeons their stations, and would take measures to ensure the proper treatment of the wounded. No general was so courteous and considerate to his prisoners. Many a character has been written of Marlborough, varying from the strongest praise to the severest blame it would seem the true course not to temper the praise with the blame and produce a verdict that should be neither hot nor cold but to adopt and combine the strong features from each account and to leave it to the moral philosopher to decide how it came to pass as it assuredly did that one man could combine the blackest treachery and the greediest avarice with the courage the calmness and the sweetness of marlborough amongst english statesmen marlborough had most sympathy with Sidney lord godolphin and he insisted that godolphin should be appointed to the office of lord high treasurer this office is now in abeyance or rather as the expression runs it is in commission that is to say instead of one minister there are five who are called the lords of the treasury of whom the prime minister is one and the chancellor of the exchequer another from this time forward marlborough and godolphin were firm allies lord godolphin however was not a statesman of a high order but one who would be best described as a shrewd man of business he was able to give marlborough very useful support for an army depends on its supplies and money is the sinews of war But in private life, Godolphin was not superior to the country squires of his time. He had no taste for literature or art, and his favorite pursuits were racing and cock-fighting. In the work which now lay before Marlborough, he was very materially assisted by two men, Prince Eugène and Hensius. Prince Eugène was a younger son of the House of Savoy. He was born in France and educated for the priesthood, but he showed even in his studies a taste for the life of a soldier. Instead of theological works, he was fond of reading Plutarch's lives. He was a youth of slender figure, and King Louis, on that account, refused him the commission for which he asked, and spoke contemptuously of the little abbé. This insult Eugène never forgot. He immediately left France and entered the service of the emperor. He was thus an Italian, born in france and living in germany in his signature he united the languages of the three countries eugenio von Savoy. the empire had for many years been engaged in constant wars with the turks in these wars eugene so distinguished himself that he came to be regarded as the first general of the empire between him and marlborough a very warm friendship sprang up which never cooled there was no jealousy between them but whether they were working together in the same campaign or at a distance at the head of separate armies they were always one-minded in their aims and policies yet eugene was very different from marlborough he had not the same calmness his courage was mixed with daring he was like a fury in the day of battle and as prodigal of the lives of his soldiers as he was careless of his own The third in this triumvirate, which broke the power of Louis and delivered Europe, was not a general but a statesman. As such, his work is in the background and has not been much noticed in histories. Yet, though not visible, the work which he did in holding the members of the grand alliance together, in keeping Holland faithful to the cause, and in helping Marlborough with advice was as true and valuable as the more brilliant exploits of others antony hensius was a dutch statesman shortly after william of orange had carried the english revolution to a successful issue he became grand pensionary a title which we may translate into our own political language by calling him prime minister of holland on entering public life he had preferred for his country a close alliance with france and had been hostile to the princes of the house of orange But a visit to Versailles opened his eyes to the fact that the Dutch could have no lasting friendship with France, who despised their government and persecuted their religion. He changed sides, joining himself closely to William, and became one of his warmest friends and most trusted advisers. And William felt that there was no man whom he could leave behind so competent and so willing to carry out his policy as Hensius. End of Section 3